This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Hey everyone, welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Before we start our show, I want to acknowledge that today, October 1st, is the start of Women's History Month here in Canada. So, happy first day of Women's History Month, my fellow Canadians, especially to all feminists and feminist allies who are working hard for the collective interests of all women in this country and beyond. By the way, I'm your host, Charlene Sayo, and as usual, I'm very excited to share a fiercely loaded episode featuring New York-based artist Susan Silas and with music by Ketza, the Freak Fandango Orchestra, Ben Sound, and Guadalupe Urbina. I also have for all of you a very cool preview about a fun two-part special series featuring the very funny and very hilarious comedy duo Shugs and Fats. So stay tuned for that. That preview on Shugs and Fats is going to be at the end of the show. For today's episode, I have Brooklyn-based artist and essayist Susan Silas, who graciously invited me to her home where we talked about her latest photo series, Love in the Ruins, Sex Over 50. Now, I had the great pleasure to meet Susan. I've been a fan of her work for quite a while now, and we had a really good conversation despite the fact that we talked about death, decay, losing time, more on death, sex, pornography, women and art, and of course, death. It was pretty lively in all honesty and I can't wait to share the conversation with all of you, so stay tuned for that. And in case you missed it, over the weekend, former guest Sharon H. Chang was honored with a Seattle Globalist Award for social justice commentating and writing. So congratulations to Sharon H. Chang. This is a great win and a really, really great way to start the fall season, which will also include the release of her forthcoming book, Raising Mixed Race, Multiracial Asian Children in a Post-Racial World. Again, congratulations, Sharon. This is a great win. Coming up, we've got Woman Hurrying History featuring trailblazing Costa Rican feminist Angela Acuna Braun with music by artist and activist Guadalupe Urbina. But before Woman Hurrying History and to wrap up, we'll take a very quick mariachi-inspired music break with the Freak Fandango Orchestra and their song, El Mariachi.
A moment in history, her story, women hurrying history. Angela Acuna Braun was a Costa Rican lawyer, prolific feminist leader, writer, and chronicler of Costa Rican women and their achievements. Born in Cartago, Costa Rica, Angela began her post-secondary education in France and England, where she was exposed to and inspired by the suffrage women's movement for the right to vote. In 1912, Angela returned to Costa Rica to continue her education, but was not allowed entry to state universities. She later applied to the Liceo de Costa Rica as the only female student. It was at this time that Angela, using pseudonyms, began writing and publishing articles in local newspapers and magazines about women's rights and equality. In 1915, using her real name, Angela founded Figaro magazine, using it as a platform to influence the reformation of the Costa Rican Civil Code. In 1919, two years after graduating with a law degree, Angela became the first woman to work for the Ministry of Education, where she led numerous labor strikes and recruited women to the suffrage movement. In 1923, Angela founded the Liga Feminista Costarricense, the first feminist organization in Costa Rica. In 1925, Angela became the first female lawyer in Central America, where she quickly pushed for reforms to allow women to actively practice law and pursue careers in the legal field. Between 1929 and 1939, Angela intensified movements for women's and workers' rights. In 1929, she submitted a proposal to Congress for women's right to vote and founded the Association of University Women of Costa Rica, as well as a Costa Rican chapter of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, leading movements for the right of women to serve as mayors and judges. La vida es corta y yo In 1949, after over 30 years of campaigning, women in Costa Rica were officially allowed to vote. 
In 1950, Angela began an ambitious 20-year collaborative project with Dr. Blanche Christine Olshak on the history of women. Angela's landmark historical project, Costa Rican Women Through Four Centuries, the first of its kind, was published in two volumes and was later included in Dr. Oshak's Universal Encyclopedia of Women. In 1984, one year after her death, the Angela Acuna Braun Prize was established, an annual award ceremony that honors women journalists whose work promotes equality and equity. Angela Acuna Braun was born on October 2, 1888, and died on October 10, 1983, in her home in San Jose, Costa Rica.
This is Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Welcome back, listeners, to Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. You just heard the reggae inspired track Dub Days by London based DJ Ketza. My guest today is Susan Silas, an award winning visual artist and essayist who lives and works in Brooklyn, New York. Her work has been exhibited in numerous galleries and museums in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Toronto, Paris, Vienna, Germany, and Slovenia. Susan and her work has been featured in Art Forum, Art in America, Village Voice, The New Yorker, Camera Austria, Artnet Magazine, and many more. She writes regularly for Hyperallergic, and together with artist Chrisanne Stathakos, she edits the art blog Mommy. I had the opportunity to speak with Susan in her home in Brooklyn, New York, where she talked about her photo series, Love in the Ruins, Sex Over 50, Supporting Women Artists, Aging, Decay, Death, Sex, and Pornography. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for being here and misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman. Thank you for inviting me to your home and showing me a brief tour, photos on your wall. Well, you're very welcome, and thanks for inviting me to participate. I'm a very big fan of your work, and I want to talk primarily this afternoon about your work, Love in the Ruins, Sex Over 50. Um, For those who aren't familiar with your photos, can you tell the audience or the listeners what that project is all about? Well, it's a project that I started around the time, actually, that I was turning 50, and uh, with my husband, who was then 62. And... It developed oddly, somewhat spontaneously, out of our sex life. Um, not that that, not that it wasn't conscious at some level, also, but the images basically show the two of us having sex, and the images that have been shown to date at an exhibition at Studio Ten in Bushwick are fairly formal. I would say they do more than just show sex, although obviously they're doing that too, but I think that they're fairly seriously composed and thought about. One of the things, although only one of them in that exhibition was was actually posed, they're generally kind of taken in action and uh, shot with the assistance of the computer firing the shutter and then edited after the fact. Wow. Okay, so it's actually the both of you caught in the act like right in the moment. Yes. I want to go back to that because you, your work explores time and space and death and decay, which I think are fascinating. Um, but when you started the project and, and you said that it was, you've written down that it's a personal diary about sex and sensuality. It is about the resilience and the decay of the aging body. When you conceptualized this, did you think that it was going to be yourself and your husband that would be the subjects of the project? I did. I did all along. I didn't imagine myself advertising. (laughs) Somebody suggested, you know, that I put an ad in the newspaper and and go out and photograph other couples, but that really wasn't on my agenda. Okay, why was that not on your agenda? Why did you think that it would be about, you know, more about your husband and yourself and not other couples? I think partly I was already focused on myself, so maybe that um, was part of it. I had started a series of images uh, photographing myself in the mirror, which are somewhat different, and there I was much, much more conscious of this exploration of the self. I was thinking about identity. I was thinking about notions of self-intimacy, the idea that I'm different with myself in some profound way than I am with other people and in public, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I was already developing those images when the idea of doing these images of my husband and I together came up. And it was... It was something I'd already mentioned to him a couple of times, like, why don't we do this? And I wasn't getting much of a response to that <laughs> idea. And obviously, I needed his cooperation. And we weren't married at the time either. And then um, at some point on a vacation, we happened to be having sex standing by a dresser, and the camera was sitting right there. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you take a picture? And I said, really? <laughs> And then we got started. But it took a long, long time and a lot of photographing to get images that I thought were 
both interesting enough, formal enough um, to actually show. Okay. It takes a lot of time. Now, in terms of the process that was involved in creating the photos, and it's still an ongoing project, mm -hmm. I understand, um, you've been asked before numerous times, and I know that your, your photos have ended up in some websites, some pornographic mm -hmm. websites even. So, you know, how do you address the issue that people would look at this and say, well, the process is similar to that of pornography where you're actually having sex and the camera's catching it, and that's exactly what happens in porn, yet your photos don't evoke that same kind of um, uh, emotion or feeling from from audiences or, or the viewers. So how do you distinguish the two? Because you say that your photos are very far away from pornography. Well, I don't know if I say they're very far. I think what I would say rather, although I don't see much pornography with older people, although there is some, yeah. what I would say is that from my point of view, pornography is defined by use. So if somebody is literally jerking off to my pictures, <laughs> then, or a woman is masturbating to my pictures, then I would say that it's functioning as pornography for them. And on the other hand, for those to whom it's not even erotic, let's yeah. say, who say, oh, what are those two old people doing together? Or who wants to look at this? Obviously, that's not functioning as porn for them. So I think that I'm more inclined to define pornography by its use than strictly by its content. Okay. Very interesting answer. Now, you started this project over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. You say you were turning 50. You're in your 60s now? Early. Early 60s. Okay. How has the project changed? Because it's been over 10 years. Well, it's interesting. I have been focused, I mean, it's been developing too, and I've taken additional images, but I've also been taking more self-portraits again. And one of the things that I've noticed in those images recently is that the change in my face from, it's sort of horrifying, between 20, let's say 11 and 2015 is pretty remarkable. Now that's only four years, but I think at a certain age, you just, see the aging galloping off, you know, it's just, you see a lot of change. And I suspect that that is just as visible in the photographs of my husband and I together as it is um, in the images of just me. What I like about your photos, Love in the Ruins, Sex Over 50, is that there's this narrative, it just even starting from the title, like Love in the Ruins, um, and it evokes so much of a story structure and I feel like there's a beginning the middle and end when it comes to time like it, and and you've said before that it wasn't so much about I think you said sometime in somewhere in an interview where you said that the photos aren't really about trying to capture or trying to stave off decay but you were just trying to capture the moment but yet when I look at your photos I feel like there's a story here two people that have met so you guys have a history there's a present and then there's death looming, looming out yeah. there somewhere yeah. not as far away as it used to be yeah. um i think that at a certain age one is very conscious that any any day can be the last day i mean and i don't think one feels that way in one's 20s or 30s or even necessarily one's 40s i would say that i have probably felt that more than the average person because I lost my father at a very young age, but also because my parents went through the Holocaust, and so I had this consciousness that the world can just turn on a dime and become treacherous, scary, and leave lots of bodies in its wake. So uh, I think I've always had that consciousness. Probably it contributed to my becoming an artist in the first place. And I think that all of my work, even the work on the Holocaust and the work I've done on decaying birds and the work I've done on my aging body and older people having sex is all connected to the theme of the sort of fragility of sensate being, of its finitude and of the singularity of each of those creatures, you know, either animal or human. Okay, so now we're talking more about time and mm -hmm. decay, and um, I love that you mentioned that 
you've known or you always had this precondition of death ever since you were a child I imagine mm -hmm. so I want to quote a couple of things that you, from you okay um, in the introduction to the interviews of your Helmbrecht's walk mm -hmm. project you wrote to be caught in the vortex of history always feels unfair one person's life is swept away or irreparably altered while the next person's goes on almost as it had before in an interview that you did last year with Justin Noble, uh, you stated being present or in the moment probably does function to stave off the consequences of time and that one is being and not forestalling. So, you know, do you despair the movement of time or are you fascinated by it? I think we're stuck with it. <laughs> it's more, more what it is. And I think that the, the other way in which I've been interested in time is precisely because of the experience of my parents, I've been very conscious of the time that one steps on the stage, like what, what one is born into, because that determines so much. I feel like the force of history and its consequences are something that intermingle, obviously, with the individuals caught in that particular moment in time, and that that's not something we have enormous control of. Over. I mean, we have a little bit of control, but not a lot of control. So, for example, um, if you were born in Vietnam at a certain period of time, you got caught up in the invasions of the French of the United States. If you were, you know, in Cambodia in the 70s, you know, one in five people was murdered by the regime. Um, and those, and all of that, I'm sure, that consciousness on my part or hyper vigilance about that had to do with my parents own experience which was that they were you know barely 20 and barely 30 respectively and they were essentially found themselves in a situation where they were told that they had no right to exist they were Jews you don't have a right to even be and so that I think sense of history and time is something I feel very conscious of Wow. As it relates, obviously, to individual being. Okay. Do you think it makes you fearless with your work? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, it's funny. I mean, part of me feels fearless, and part of me is a little bit of a scaredy cat at the same time. <laughs> I think I'm both those things, you know, so. When it comes to your work, though, um, your work is as intellectually challenging as it is emotionally provocative. You also do a lot of writing. Mm -hmm. and can you talk a little bit about the history of your writing? Because I, I understand that you weren't into writing before. Well, it wasn't that I wasn't into it, because actually when I was a little kid, I thought I was going to be a writer. Okay. I think that the difficulty for me by the time I got to art school was that in the period in which I was in art school, which has changed very much now, yeah. If you chose to write, your chances of being taken seriously as an artist seemed to be diminished. You know, that you were either a real artist or you were a writer, but you weren't really both. And so I was afraid to write because I was afraid it would negatively impact my progress as a visual artist. Nowadays, that's, I mean, people would find that ridiculous. Yeah. You know, people do all sorts of things. They work in all kinds of media. They, these things don't matter, but they did then. Okay. Or the perception was that it was a problem. Okay. You know, that those who don't teach kind of, that was one of those, well, it was sort of those who don't write or whatever. Yeah. And so it wasn't a good thing to do. Do you think that that was a response um, because you're a woman and writing takes on this very intellectual approach do you think it was also that that you know to be a thinking woman you couldn't also be an artist no i think that that prejudice uh, to be honest i'm always on the lookout for prejudice against women i think that prejudice existed against men too okay. frankly back then okay. um to some degree there were some people that didn't seem included in that but they wrote about i think largely their own art although not entirely like smithson and judd okay. Who kind of got away with that but I, m mostly not I think. Okay. Do you think your writing though informs the intellectual aspect of your photographs because I see that I see uh -huh. that you really ha when I look at your photos I have um, an emotional reaction but I'm also intrigued by it there's always a narrative and I'm always trying to like piece together like the story so do you think your writing also informs that intellectual approach in your photos? I 
don't know exactly how they fit together, but they clearly do. And one of the things that has happened since the internet for me, which has been quite wonderful, is that I've been able to do something I couldn't do before that, which is to create a website where the writing is integrated with the images in a way that is larger than just creating a caption. I've often found, even though Helmbrecht's Walk also has captions, but I've also found the captions have a kind of strange, limited quality. And what's happened on the web is that I can actually write what amounts to an occasional essay and have related images with it and have that function as a different kind of form than simply having a set of images and captions together. Okay, I love that because it's going into your blog, Mommy, that you have with Chrisanne Stathakos. Stathakos. Stathakos, uh -huh. another, I just butchered her name. <laughs> it's a hard one. It's a hard one, it is. Your uh, fellow colleague and also mm -hmm. she's an artist as well. And this blog, um, I'm fascinated by it because you say in, in, in the blog that it's a celebration of women artists and their work. So what inspired this project? Well, we were concerned about the fact that women, of course, are less visible in the art world than men and that it's more difficult to attain visibility. And we also felt that there were a lot of underappreciated mm -hmm. artists out there who'd been working for a long time. So we interview women who've been working for at least 20 years, which makes the youngest women we interview in their 40s. Um, and we've interviewed both women who we think are underappreciated and women who are also very well known um, and have big careers. And it's been a wonderful learning experience and we spend some time with the women and that's been very rewarding to do. But it did begin thinking about the questions of visibility. The other thing that seems to happen in the art world is that if you've been somewhat under the radar for a long time, but you've been producing and you're fairly strong, you have that opportunity to quote unquote, be rediscovered after <laughs> menopause, which is meaning after you're no longer a desirable sexual object. And I find this really both something I can look forward to presumably, and also something that's really annoying and insulting. Because why wouldn't you be discovered all along? But it does seem to happen, and better late than never, in my opinion. And there is a lot of that happening. So I guess it's addressing also that strange phenomenon in the art world. Okay. So then, I guess, like, when you hit a certain age, you become, like, the it woman, as opposed to being the it girl. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I mean, I think... It has been interesting that there's been a huge resurgence of attention to a certain number of women who are over... 60. Um, I was told many times in my 50s that just wait till you're 60 and that'll be it. And then recently I was at a party where someone said, oh, Susan, don't worry, just wait till you're 70. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, seriously? Now I have to wait till I'm 70? Um, I also think that it's a little bit, just a little bit easier for women who are painters because the marketplace is much more supportive of painting. But I do think that women across the board are in a position to be looked at again at a certain age. Okay. Now, the exploration into women's lives, you've looked at it in Helmbrick's Walk, mm -hmm. um, and then through your blog, Mommy, and also other works. But um, did the lives of women, is that, always, is that something that you've always looked at, or is it something that evolved over time or as you uh, grew older and into your career? I think the focus got stronger as I went along. I'd say in my early career, I was more focused actually on thinking about the intersection of history with personal uh, experience, and that still informs my work, but I think that as I got older, I became more focused on looking at the experiences of women, partly through obviously my own body, although I did do a very early set of black and white photographs of myself in the late 70s, so it was a topic I looked at before. Okay. You did a presentation in the spring 
Um, you were doing a lecture. I can't remember where it was. Probably at SVA. Yes, that's what it was. Uh, somebody asked you about, you know, why don't you write professionally like an art critic? And you said you weren't interested in doing art criticism. You wanted to write what you wanted to write about, which was about the right of the works of women. Well, it, it isn't that I don't want to write art criticism because probably what I do for hyperallergic would fall into that category when I write for them. What I didn't want to do is be a professional critic because I'm not, I'm an artist. And so when I write, I feel that I'm writing from the point of view of another artist and not of someone who's a professional critic. Um, and I respect them and I'm not in exactly the same place or turf. And I also wanted the privilege, which I don't think critics have, of only writing about what I like. And I think that critics are obligated to also write about things they don't like and to explain why. And I felt as an artist that I wanted to be able to connect to the things that I wanted to support and that I focused primarily on women, not exclusively, but primarily. Okay, primarily on women. Now, where do you see love in the ruins going? I mean, it's where do you see that? Uh, well, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, hopefully, I you know I see it a you know going into uh, collections and eventually institutions uh, where I think it belongs, so that it can have a conversation and dialogue with other photographs. And hopefully, I also see it continuing until one or both of us can't move any longer. <laughs> You know, that, that we're actually able to continue this for some time. Okay. I hope. Okay. And I really wanted to ask you, though, because you, you're you a very generous artist. I, I'm getting that sense just sitting across from you. You talk about the work of other women and other artists, and you want to give that space. Where does that generosity come from? I don't sense this competition in you towards other artists. I think everybody feels somewhat competitive, but I also feel like, it's not, A, it's, it's just not that useful to live in the world in that kind of mode because it's kind of aggressive yeah. and, um, and not often that helpful. I think the art world is a very competitive place, actually, the professional art world, and a kind of difficult and treacherous <laughs> one, too. But uh, I do think there are some people who are generous to each other, not many, um, I think women need to help each other more because they're at a disadvantage, I think, at the moment. I don't think that hopefully will always be that way, but I think that it's very important for women to step up. And I don't think it's so easy because, take as an example a, a woman art dealer. She needs to make money or she's going to go down the toilet. And the bulk of collecting right, is the collecting of male artists. Now, I think that that's changing, although it's changing slowly, but it's hard to blame that woman, right, for showing men if she thinks that she can't sell the female artists for as much money, because women's work is valued at a lower price tag, as we also know. So there's a lot that needs to change, and I think some women are out there really trying and working hard on the behalf of other women, but I think the change is slow. Oh, okay. Regarding your self-portraits mm -hmm. and also Love in the Ruins, Sex Over 50, can you talk about that strange process of being the creator and also being the subject of the work? Because in so many ways, somebody could say, well, that's a very narcissistic piece of work. It's a self-portrait. They could even, like, people could also look at Love in the Ruins and say, well, that's a very narcissistic piece of work as well between two people like look at them but it's not that there's no I don't sense this narcissism there so how do you um what's that strange process in terms of being the creator and then being the subject of the piece and then also distancing yourself away that there isn't this sense of narcissism it's, it's funny that you ask that because I'm again working on a set of these self-portraits <laughs> and this time the it's with two mirrors so instead of there just being two of me there are occasionally four of me it's really expanded and I thought and I'm thinking this time that rather than show a few large pieces I would show many many smaller ones and I thought oh people are gonna say this woman is an insane narcissist like what is the story here and I understand how that can be one reaction, 
but I also just, you know, for myself, see that I'm the model for this exploration that could be about any other woman, presumably, as well. Um, but I also think that one subjective opinion, uh, situation is an important thing. In other words, in the old days, everything was universalized uh, with white men as the standard. You know, medical practices, women were given the same dosages as men. You know, humanism was all about the standards of white men, Western men. And so the subjective opinion, uh, not opinion, but uh, position, is not irrelevant. I think it's very important. And I don't want to break everything up into little identities. It's not what I'm getting at, but that I think we have trouble in America, for example, with race because we don't understand the other person's subject position at all. Like, we just don't get it, okay. sadly. Yeah. And I think the divide is bigger than people have wanted to admit for a very long time, and that's become very evident recently. And so I'm staking out my subject position. I'm a female. I'm over a certain age. Yes, I'm white. Yes, I'm Jewish. I'm those things. Yeah. and. It is from that place that I'm making those images. And it doesn't mean that no one else can relate to them, but that's where they're coming from, and I'm perfectly willing to be upfront about that. With respect to what happens to them afterwards, interestingly for me, when they go up on the wall, I know this sounds crazy, I don't think of them as myself. I, they, they don't feel different to me from other artworks that I've made. I see them on the wall and they somehow have a life of their own that doesn't, that feels somewhat distanced from me, not because I'm trying to distance myself, but just because they already are in that they will now speak to an audience in a way that I can't control. So they have a life of their own, and and actually the first time I showed a couple of the sex images in Atlanta, that was uh, Stuart Herodner, who's wonderful, and a curator was the first person to show them. And I remember on the way to the opening, which was a big group show, so lots of people, <laughs> thinking, what if I like get there and it feels really weird? Because I hadn't shown them before. Like I didn't know what was going to happen. It's like everyone's looking at naked pictures of me, and I'm standing there like in my clothes, and. Uh, and when I got there, I discovered it was no different from me than any other exhibition I had ever participated in. They were the objects that I had made, and I didn't feel that way at all. Like, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that I was, like, up there naked screwing my husband's <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, but I, I wasn't thinking that. Okay, that's interesting. So it's like you, but not, not you. Not me, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic in terms of the distance. So... Just one last question. Okay. It's related to the themes of death and decay and also with your career. So you've been um, a professional artist for over 20 years now, but your work does deal with death and decay. Do you have a sense of satisfaction or does, it, does the, the looming death aspect, the reality, does it make you uh, keep working harder now? I think that... At a certain age, you're more focused because you see the horizon getting closer. I guess I guess that's true. And I was pretty focused when I was younger, but I guess one's conscious of thinking, well, how much more time is left and how much will I be able to accomplish between now and whenever that is? And I don't think that one really thinks that way on a daily basis when one's I just, <laughs> even I, who was sort of overly conscious of death, didn't think like that about my work. Yeah. So I think that that changes. And I have friends who have talked about that. I have one friend in Hungary who I adore who's a painter, and he's my age, and he makes these massive photorealistic paintings, and they take a long, long time to do. And he really feels like, he, he barely does anything but paint. You know, there's this many paintings left, that he's going to make, yeah. he, he feels very conscious of that. And if he's not working all the time, then that's one less painting. Wow. You know, so I think people do start to think about that very seriously at some point. And do you, are you starting to feel that way right now? I, you know, I've felt it actually for a while okay. that you just don't know. Okay. And that 
you know, it's important that what I really need to be doing is just making my work and not much else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want you to continue making <laughs> Thank work. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully for a while. Hopefully, yes. I think so. Susan, thank you so much for being on the show. I had a great conversation. This is absolutely amazing. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. back everyone i hope you enjoyed that little parisian break courtesy of ben sound music now earlier in the show i mentioned that next week i'll be introducing a two-part special featuring the comedy duo shugs and fats aka comedians nadia manzur and radika vaz i don't want to give away too much right now except that shugs and fats has been getting a lot of great attention in the last year or so not only because they're a hilarious and extremely smart female comedy duo, but because they're also women of color dressed in hijabs whose comedy sketches looks at religion, speed dating, feminism, cleanses, catcalls, and vibrators. You can check out their YouTube channel, Shugs and Fats, but here's a little preview of what they do. This is Shugs and Fats in their webisode, Postman Pat. Postman Pat. Postman Pat, Postman Pat and his black and white cat Early in the morning Postman Pat is snoring Postman Pat is such a lucky man Postman Pat Give me a melody! Fun for us, fun for us, fun for us, fun for us. Oh, we've got another letter! Oh, we've got another letter! Oh my god, this is, we're getting so many these days. Especially for shit. What is it? Where are we going? Jury duty! Jury duty! Jury duty! Oh my god, I can't even summon the jury! Oh my god! Do you know what this means? Fans, we are real Americans. And we get to meet Judge Judy! Oh my god! to eat that day. We're going yeah. to get some smoked salmon, we're going to get some Mexican food, all oh, kinds of totally, things. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I wonder what the case is going to be to the murder, to the murder mystery. Oh yeah, this is America. And they're going to have like a black limo, like a stretch limo that's going to come pick us up from the door. And like bodyguards are going to come like escort us to the car with like mag, like, like rifles, like, like rifle guns. Because like this is like high profile stuff. You know, they've probably got people, they've probably got people watching us right now. Right now? What if they're in danger? There's probably a microphone in the box, don't look at the box, don't look at it. I'm just don't know, abnormal, I'm just abnormal. Gonna, I'm, I'm acting normal. I think it's a murder trial that we are being, I think we're going to don't investigate it. We are patriots of this beautiful country. We have not ordered any strange objects from Japan on no, no man needed.com. And I did not taunt Mrs. Ladder's young child. I did not taunt him, he was taunting me. Bastard, right now. We do not use curse words on a regular basis. We have all our meals on time. Nor do we listen to any form of rap. Especially old school. We do not smoke ganja. Or cigarettes. Or the reefer. No alcohol.
Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that bit by Shugs and Fats, otherwise known as Nadia Mansour and Radhika Faz, whom I'll be featuring in the next couple of weeks. We're at the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with New York photographer and artist, Susan Silas. For more information about Susan and her work, please check out her websites, susansilas.com and her art blog, Mommy at mommybysilasandstathikos.com. You can listen to past episodes of Misrepresent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman at misrepresentpodcast.com and make sure to follow me on Twitter at Just Call Me Char. Intro and outro music by Emily Simone. Additional music by Stealing Orchestra and Raphael Genosio, Steve Combs, The Arthur Pryor's Band, The Freak Fandango Orchestra, Guadalupe Urbina, Ketza, and Ben Sound Music. Fierce's thank yous to my guest, Susan Silas. And of course, thank you, Fierce listeners and supporters. Without your ears, Misrepresent wouldn't be here for a second season. Don't forget to tune in next week for another Fierce episode featuring another Fierce woman. This is Miss Represent Behind the Face of Fierce Woman.